0: What I want you to do really quick as we're waiting for the lights to come up, I want you to loosen up your mind for just a minute here. I want you to give yourself the flexibility to to maybe come up with just a handful of simple words that you would use to describe something that I think is dear to most people. All right, so th- this in particular deals with you if you are a parent or uh, you are a parent that you know, maybe your kids are older, but you think back to the days when they were younger, you were raising them and that kind of thing. Um, I want you to center on that, and I want you to create a very simple list. Three, five words, something like that. What are the five concepts, character traits, virtues that you most desire for your children when they grow up? What are those five character traits that you go, man, if they could be this, this would be awesome. This is what I'm working toward as a parent. Or you reflect back when you were raising your kids. What was it you wanted for your kids above all else? Kind of find those three words, those five words, let them sit there. Now, with those traits in mind, here's the question. Of that list of words that you established, were there descriptions such as, when my child grows up, I really hope hope they're poor. Maybe not monetarily, but I hope that spiritually they're bankrupt. Did you think, I want my child to be a mourner when they're older, to mourn, to be sad. I hope my child is meek when they grow up. I hope my child, above all else, hungers and thirsts for righteousness. I hope my child is merciful or pure in heart. I hope, above all else, that when my child grows up, they are a peacemaker. Or the best of all, boy, when my child gets older, I hope they're persecuted. See, I I, I bring that up because that's really where Jesus is going to start this radical manifesto. And when I look at that list, and I took this test myself this week and failed, right? So I thought about what is it I want for my son, Grayson, who's sitting here in the front row, aside from wanting him in the front row, just like this the whole time, um, which I want. So do that. All right. So, um, but I go, man, you, you know, I have this list of things. I want him to be successful, and I want him to be strong, and I want him to be determined, and I want him to be a hard worker. And again, those aren't bad things. But, but I was really struck by how much my mind goes to those things, and I just don't go to the place where Jesus goes. And I believe that that reflects something on us as far as where our priorities really lie, where our heart is sometimes grounded, and what we hold sometimes as values that may not be the values and the truest sense that are the paramount values of Jesus. See, when we look at his system, it's, it's just different. His virtues are different. And therefore, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going to go through for the next couple of months, we're going to be radically challenged. We're going to have to face some things in our lives. We're going to have to face some priorities that we make and go, man, am I seeing this as clearly as Jesus intends for me to see life? See, that's what emerges on this radical message that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago. In fact, if anything, the Sermon on the Mount is just radically counterintuitive, right? I mean, you think about in his ministry, he did miracles, and from the miracles, lots of crowds, they came. He could rally a crowd, but see, here's the cool thing about Jesus. He's unlike any kind of pastor I know today. You know, pastors were a funny lot. Uh, We want truth, but we also want crowds. Jesus didn't care if he had a crowd as long as that crowd wanted to follow truth. Right? And that was his motive. He wanted disciples. He wanted followers. Not just masses. And so miracles brought masses, but then his message thinned out the masses to see who would want to be a disciple. Who would want to take up the virtues and values of his kingdom. And so as I studied this week, and I had tons of notes, man, I was just, just up to here and stuff. I mean, there was so much there. Because as I looked at the Sermon on the Mount, these simple three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, I realized in those three chapters, three things are challenged in our lives, in our decisions, in our makeup. The first thing is that the Sermon on the Mount makes us confront ourselves against Jesus' standard and Jesus' ruler. I mean, that's all it does. Now again, I don't say that as though you look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, I need to do this to be loved by God. No, that's not the case. God loves you through Christ, by grace, through faith alone. You don't earn God's love, but you do earn reward. And the Sermon on the Mount's about that. How we earn reward. How we think eternally. And not just here and now. And so with that, this is going to confront, again, our own lives. Our own selves. Another thing about the Sermon on the Mount I have uh, discovered over the course of time, it is a message that everybody loves. And everybody, at some point, hates. Everybody loves it. Everybody claims it. If you read the Communist Manifesto, you know what that was established on the back of? Sermon on the Mount. The communists love the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi loves the Sermon on the Mount. You read his stuff, he loved it. Christians all over the world, they love the Sermon on the Mount. But if you really start to dig deep, you realize that we only love some of it. We love the parts we're good at. We don't love the parts that challenge us. And in fact, even as I thought about it this week, I thought, what a strange thing. That, you know, you're going to have some people, actually you're going to have unbelievers even, that truly like some parts of it, right? I mean, they're going to be like, hey, the golden rule, love the golden rule. One of the only verses your unbelieving friends can quote is from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, lest you be judged. What? Right? You know, like, that's like the only thing Jesus ever said, you know. Um, but they can quote it. But, but even in the church, we're all going to say, no, man, this is the word of God. We all love it. But then you start breaking it into percentages. And there's going to be some people in the church that about 20% of the Sermon on the Mount, they're good with. They're good with the golden rule. They're good with the do not judge, lest you be judged. Right? They're good with leave the gift at the altar and go to the person that you need to be reconciled with. They're going to be good with that. But then like 80% they're going to be like, I don't know, that kind of cramps my style. That demands too much. They don't say that out loud. They just live in such a way that 80% is just sort of pushed to the side. They have just enough to be happy, not enough to be holy, and that's good enough. You have others that are kind of a 50-50 split. They go, no, no, I'm going to take all that stuff on. I, you, you, you give in private, you pray in private, you fast in private, plus the golden rule, plus the do not judge. You know, I, I like those. And they're going to be the ones that get the label devout because, again, they take about half of it pretty seriously. But then they run into these other things like, oh, I'm supposed to love my enemy and do good to them? I'd rather just gossip about them at match because that's easier. <laughs> right? And so not so much that. Oh, my righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Whoa, I don't know. That asks a lot, so they'll be 50-50, and so they get the label devout. Then you get some people go, no, man, 80% of this, I'm doing 80% of this. I really am. I'm all over it, man. I know if I think it in my heart, I've done it. I know the standards on divorce and remarriage. I'm there, and so, all, man, yeah, I, I'm salt and light. These are Bible thumpers at 80%. Right? All of chapter 7, yet my house was built on the rock, not the sand, all those great messages. But then we run into things like, turn the other cheek. We go, well, it depends how hard they hit it. Depends on if they're a jerk or not. Yeah, you know? and, and then it gets real problem. If somebody demands you to do something, you go the extra mile. What well, it depends on the demand. Is it infringing on my rights? Do I have liberties and laws that protect me? And and so we get a little nervous. Here's the craziest thing about this. Um, If you ever meet a person that 100% abides by and lives out the Sermon on the Mount, this is what I realized about my own life this week. I would probably mock them. Truly. I would criticize them. I think a person, if in the Christian church, lived out the Sermon on the Mount, a hundred percent, a lot of their persecution would be inside the church. Because they would be told, well, you're being naive. You're being uh, just uh, too silly about this. You're too radical. I had a friend of mine, it reminded me of this, where I, I, I probably never seen a guy in the church get more pummeled at one time then he made a very simple statement. And I know a lot of us are going to disagree with this. I get it. His statement was simple. I don't do the Pledge of Allegiance because Jesus says don't make vows in the Sermon on the Mount. And man, he was unpatriotic, un-American, all these things. He's like, no, 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 I love my country. I fly a flag at my house on my front porch. Right? I'm not un-American. I, I, I just take Jesus and his word on this. And it was like he was vilified for taking a really strong position on that. Now, it doesn't mean that that's fully what Jesus says or doesn't say. We don't We don't have to even judge that here. It was the irony that the guy says, because of these red letters here, I make this decision, and from that, other Christians sort of persecuted him for it. Right? And, and all he was trying to do was just live out the Sermon on the Mount as radically as he could. And so there is that strange thing that there are going to be times as we look at this, and for the people that live it out the furthest a lot of us, including myself, are going to look and go, really? Come on. You're cute. But that's not the real world. And I start to let the real world dictate, at times, how I treat the message of Jesus. It's because this is so foreign. I mean, basically, you think about it, Jesus comes into the world... And in this message, he goes, you know, all the ways you live, all the ways the nations of the world do it, hey, let me give you one that nobody does. Here's one unlike anything you will see. Happy are persecuted people. Happy are those who cry. Happy are meek people. You want to be truly godly? Get pushed around a little. I mean, that blows our mind. No, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to be done. And then Jesus just lets it sit there in awkward discomfort. Like, we have to figure out, what does it mean? What this teaches me is that these things are going to have to be aggressively fought for because they're foreign. We aren't going to just sort of, by chance, live out the ideals of Jesus. I'm not. I'm not. I'm going to have to be deliberate to really live it out. And Jesus knows it. And so everybody loves it, but everybody at some point also rejects it, so we must fight for it as much as possible. The third thing I realized this week as I studied is this. To the degree that you believe promises of eternity and that they are real, is to the degree that we will live out the Sermon on the Mount. To the degree that we believe God's way is the best way, is to the degree that we're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount. To the degree we really think that this world is not as cool as the world to come, is to the degree that we're going to live out the Sermon on the Mount. In other words... If we go, I believe in heaven, but I don't believe heaven. That's going to be the hang-up. I believe in the Sermon on the Mount, but I don't believe the Sermon on the Mount. See, to believe in is easy. It's once removed. It's distant. I believe in, over there. But to believe is in here. It's a conviction. It's a certainty. I make decisions knowing that eternity is true. I make decisions knowing that there is a world to come that is true. I don't need great treasures here because I know the treasures there are true. I don't need comfort here because I know comfort there is true. I can be persecuted here because I know that I will be satisfied there. It's just true. I can hunger and thirst for righteousness here, even if it means I lose much in this life because I know there I'll be satisfied. I mean, if we don't believe that, we just believe in that. This will always be a very anecdotal, very touching, very moving, very special, very memorable, very memorizable sermon. But not a life-transforming manifesto. Now, with all that said, um, I put myself firmly in probably that 80% camp. Looking at it, I'm just, that's where I'm at. So I confess... There are some places where I go, no, I want to doctor that, because it's not practical. And I realize that, therefore, I believe about 80% in this thing to come. Or rather, I believe the thing to come. And then I believe in another 20% or so uh, loosely, because I'm not ready to make adjustments. So, buckle up. I think I said somewhere on Facebook or something, I said this is, is going to hurt like a workout, but you don't need Ben Gay. You might by the end, I don't know. Um, you might need Ben Gay as we get into it. So, if you have a Bible, you have an app, whatever you have, open up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're making it to verse 10 today, uh, just because there's so much in there that's really good and helpful. It deals with the values of the kingdom. Now, it starts off in verse 1. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, now, just those two verses are rich from a Jewish perspective, right? He goes up onto a mountain, just like Sinai. He sits down, just like Moses did in Deuteronomy. He speaks God's word. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is that which we live on. Jesus is God, bringing a new law, new manifesto, new covenant, new life, new heart, new everything, and it flips everything upside down that we understand, right? So these opening words are potent. It's not just law like we've known it, but it's virtues and character qualities that we are to do. The law was impossible to achieve. And I would say in the same way, all of the Sermon on the Mount is impossible to do perfectly, but it is this compass by which we navigate. And so Jesus begins to speak, and he uses a word, Very simple word for the first opening volley. He uses the word blessed. Blessed. It's a pretty simple word. In fact, we call these the Beatitudes because that first part, the B of Beatitudes, B-E-A, is the Latin word for blessing. Right. And so we look at these and go, man, whatever this is, we're going to be blessed if we understand them. We're going to be blessed if we do them. And we use this word blessed a lot, right? I mean, you think about it. What do we do after church? We go to Ekstapa, We do Ekstapa, We bless the food. Lord, bless the food. 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 Bless the food. All right. Um, Scotland popped out. All right. So uh, we uh, bless other people, right? Say blessings on you. God bless you. We ask for God's blessing on our homes, on our marriages, on our lives. I mean, this is a pretty common word. The most popular one, God bless America. I mean, this is familiar to us. And the word means happy or fortunate, right? It's that sense of contentedness. This is what's behind this, right? And so even modern words, you know, it'd be like Napoleon would say, lucky, that's like blessed, right? So it's a good thing. It's a happy thing. It's a right thing. It's a peaceful thing. That's blessed. And when Jesus uses the word blessed, he means it in that way. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to be content. He wants us to be fulfilled. He wants us to have some sense of deep meaning and connection. But the context in which he uses it, that's what messes with us. And what he tells us, in essence, is all the things that you think are going to be blessings to you, well, they may not really end in blessing. What I'm about to tell you, if you do these things, you live this way, you will, in fact, be blessed. You will be content. You will be fulfilled. You will have that sense of, of happiness. But then we, again, look at the list. And the list is a little challenging. I mean, imagine if, if we went to Jesus and, and we said, uh, Jesus, we want you to bless our home. Or bless our country, right? God bless America. And when we ask that, we know what we're asking for. We're we're saying what we desire from you are these things like deliverance and comfort and gifts and satisfaction and mercy, enlightenment, affirmation, your sustaining grace. God, Jesus, how can we have those things by your blessing? And then Jesus would blow our mind and say, well, if you choose poverty and mourning and meekness and hungering and thirsting and mercy and purity and peacemaking and persecution, then you will be blessed. And we say, what are you talking about, Willis? That's not what we were looking for. We said, God bless our home. God bless my life. God bless America. We didn't mean poverty. Certainly of spirit. We, we We didn't mean persecution. Blessing means we're not. We didn't mean meek. Blessing means I'm strong. And Jesus said, I, I, I know what you mean. You want to be blessed, though? Here, here's how blessing comes through these things. See, part of the problem is that we want treasure, but we don't want to dig. Right? I, that's, that's all there is, really, right? Uh, we want blessing, but I don't want bruising. That, that's great. Now, do I think happiness is good? I do. And we all want to be happy. We want happy birthdays and happy New Year's and happy Valentine's Day, guys. Don't screw that up and you'll have a happy Valentine's Day, right? So, we want happy. We want happy jobs and happy homes and happy families and, you know, happy marriages and all that happiness. And I believe we can have happiness as long as we realize that happiness is not a synonym for painless. Because Jesus says, hey, man, I came to make you happy, to give you abundant life. But I didn't say it'd be painless. And unlike Pedro, not all of your wildest dreams will come true. Alright? This is like Napoleon Dynamite Day for me. I don't even know where that came from. I haven't seen it in like a year. All right, But he says it's not going to be that way. It's going to be a little bit different, different, this road to blessing. But if I bless you, and you live out the values of blessing, What he promises, and this is the big thing about the Beatitudes, they are promises to claim. If you want to go through the Bible and say, I want promises to claim, these are promises to claim. Eight promises where he says, if you do this, you will have confidence, comfort, security, satisfaction, sympathy, enlightenment, acknowledgement, and reward. You will get all that you want. But you have to think differently. You have to think very differently. In fact, the first thing he says is that you need to realize the confidence. It comes through poverty. Confidence comes through poverty. And this is a strange thing for us, right? Because we talk about consumer confidence. What we mean by consumer confidence is when consumers are confident they can buy because there isn't poverty. And, 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 and Jesus takes us and says, no, 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 I'm not talking about material wealth necessarily, though if you read Luke chapter 6, that's really all Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Plain. But in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, no, I want you to practice spiritual honesty. This isn't monetary poverty, this is a spiritual poverty. This is a spiritual honesty. It's authentic spirituality that says, you know what? I know what I am internally. I know what I am spiritually. I know how badly I really need God. See, that's the heart behind this. And the problem that I've realized with us as human beings is that we suffer from being pretty. We think we're pretty. Which is sort of silly that we think we're pretty. But think about it. Uh, We think we're pretty smart. Pretty funny. Pretty reliable, pretty handsome, pretty cute, pretty fit. And then when it turns into spiritual things, we think we're pretty good, we're pretty moral, we're pretty ethical, we're pretty devout. Here's what I've realized about the word pretty. We use that word because we don't want to say we're actually devout, actually moral, actually reliable. We say, I'm pretty reliable, which means just short of. That's what that means. I mean, really, we don't want to just go, I'm moral. I'm pretty moral. What's that mean? Less than moral. That's what that means. All right? (laughs) That's all that means. All right? So next time you say that, when somebody says, hey, you trust that guy? Yeah, he's pretty reliable. He's less than reliable. That's what that means. All right? So I say embrace it. We think we're pretty whatever. Well, we are pretty whatever, which means less than what it should be. And that's what Jesus is getting at here on the blessed are the poor in spirit. When he says that, what he's saying is, just be honest. You're pretty moral, which means below the norm, below the average. You're pretty spiritual, which is below spiritual. And acknowledge that. Cry out. Realize that that is the condition, because that is our condition. All relationship with God begins with one simple acknowledgement. I have sinned and only you are good. I am rebellious, but you alone save. See, that's why Jesus starts it off at this point. He says, man, if this is going to work, if you're going to live out the kingdom, if you're going to embody the the values that come after this, there must be a poverty of spirit, a poverty of soul that says, you know, I I bring nothing to the table. I don't earn, I don't deserve, I don't fabricate things that God says, ah, now you're worthy. There is no pretty good, unless pretty good means less than good. And he says, boy, if you're there, though, man, I take you, and I love you, and I make you my own, and I change your heart, and I do these other things in your life. From this platform that says, you know what, Uh, I'm, I'm just a beggar. I'm just a beggar, and God, you're the provider. And I, I know that I'm, I'm not better than most, or better than some, or wh- I, I'm just, apart from you, it doesn't matter. Judging myself against others' lives is immaterial, if God is the standard. And so he says, yes, that's it, that's where, that's where you get it. That's poverty of spirit. And when there's poverty of spirit, it says, then for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's where you know you have life. You have entrance entrance into God's kingdom. You're a part of what God is up to because you know that you are only in there by His grace. That's it. And you go, man, that's how I know. I'm a member of the kingdom. And that kingdom is yours now. That's present tense right now. That's where you reside. That's your world. This world is not our world. We are not citizens of this place. Not really. Paul says that in Philippians 3. He says, man, you're citizens of heaven. you got to look up. We look down. We look around. We should look up. In fact, only when we look up is the rest of this going to be true. If we're looking down, looking around, this is more our sphere of interest than that. The rest of this list is going to get stupid fast. I mean, really, we're going to start to look and go, dumb, 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 dumb. Who can do that? Why would you do that? It's stupid. You'll never get ahead with that. But if we go, no, I'm looking up. I realize. Then it can be different. And so Jesus says the first thing, then confidence, confidence comes through poverty. So practice spiritual honesty. Know who you are before God. From here, Jesus gets on the move. And the next thing he says is the comfort comes through tears. This is the practice of good mourning. He says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, this has a couple of different things to it. One is just mourn over our own, our own sin, our own offenses. And when I say that, here's what I don't necessarily mean mourning over our consequences. See, when we mourn over the consequences of our sin, sometimes it's because we got caught, we disappointed others, something happened as the collateral damage of my decision, and from that there's tears. Right? That's mourning over consequence. Mourning over sin is, if nobody knows, I am grieved. If nobody ever sees, my heart is broken. If it isn't scandalous, but I know it displeases God, I should be saddened over my offense. He says, man, if that's your heart, blessed are you. You mourn over the fact that this world is broken and you're still coming through this world broken and cracked and bruised and incomplete, and so you mourn over that. Man, that's a good place to be with God. Mourning over our own sin. And Jesus says, I'll bless you for that. There's also blessing for mourning over the sins of others. And I think this is highly valuable because here's a temptation. A temptation in our lives is that we brood over other people's sins more than we break for them. Right? We spend more time being angry at the sins of others instead of weeping over the sins of others. We turn on the news or we read the paper or we see a neighbor down the street or we see a kid at school or whatever it is and we see their sin and we just turn red. We just get irritated. We go home and we complain to our spouse man, they are idiots. But we don't mourn. And I think in my own life, because I'm not one that probably mourns a lot over people that sin as much as I crack jokes. I mean, really, I'd be like, oh man, that guy's an idiot. Let me tell you the five ways. You know, and like, how sad. How sad that I may get angry or I might crack jokes or I might be sarcastic when God weeps. It's like, well, why don't I weep? And I realized i don 't weep because it 's not so much that it offends God that i 'm bothered by it 's that it just irritates me. like if I really looked at a sinful, broken world through the eyes of God, I would weep day after day. I think about that with like david he says river of rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. David would just gush the tears when he would look around. Right, and I, I, I just don't do that because I go. Ultimately, I'm just concerned whether it irritates me or not. If it doesn't irritate me, I don't care. If it irritates me, I get mad. I get flippant. I get sarcastic. If I saw it with God's eyes, I would cry. Because if I saw it with God's eyes, I would also realize that all of that sin, if those people are in Christ, was punished. All of that sin God had to pour wrath on, all of that sin Jesus had to absorb the wrath. I think Jesus and God see sin a whole lot different than we do. Because we don't suffer for sin. We didn't pay any penalty for sin. We didn't pour out wrath on an innocent one for sin. So we just don't see it the same way. But but the way the Father and the Son see it, no, there's cost. There's sacrifice. When we look at the sins of our culture, instead of ranting, we should be weeping. We should be worrying about God's glory more than we worry about our discomfort. We should pray for them more than we pray against them. And Jesus knows this. I mean, again, he goes into Jerusalem. He mourns over the city. The city that's going to cry, crucify him. (laughs) Ha ha, look at you, spit in your face. I mean, Jesus mourns. And so he says, man, that's where real comfort's going to be because you will be comforted if you mourn now. Which means we just have to protract it out. In this world, it's going to be hard. You can be happy in this world, but it doesn't mean it's going to be painless. But you know that one day, man, I'm going to be comforted. It's going to be okay. Jesus goes on. says another crazy thing. He says security comes through gentleness. And here he's talking about the practice of harnessed strength. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now understand, meek isn't weak. We sometimes interchange it that way. Or, ah, a meek person's a weak person. So, for example, maybe if I try to give this a context, a strong person can deliver a blow, and a weak person can get knocked over by a blow, but a meek person can just take the blow. Right? That's the idea of meek in the New Testament. That's the Greek idea behind the word. It literally means strength under control, strength harnessed. So it's used of wind when it's a gentle breeze. It's a meek breeze. In other words, there can be no wind at all, or it could be a wind that rips an entire town apart, but meek wind is that perfect balance. Or in the day, they would have meek medicine, which meant not too little and not too much. So not so little, it doesn't help, and not so much, it poisons in a different way. But that sweet spot the medicine operates in. Or an animal might be meek, which means it has been harnessed to take its strength and drive a plow. So meek isn't weak. Meek is strong, but channeled. And so that's what Jesus seeks of his people. I want you to be strong, but channeled. It's not about self-assertion. It's about selflessness. He says, that's what I'm looking for. You could be strong. You could demand your own way. You could bowl people over. You could make all the kind of, you know, absolute mandates you want, but you don't. Because you want to harness that for right things. You might assert that for others, and Jesus would say, that's good. When it's assertion for others' justice, that's fine. Make sure you understand what justice is, though, as we'll get into in a little bit. But when it comes to self, we say, I don't self-assert. Rather, I leave that to God. He can assert for me. I trust him. Again, this goes back to, do I believe in or do I believe? If I believe, I let God handle. If I believe in, I might take things into my own hands. And so that's the heart that Jesus has. No, I want you to believe. I want you to be meek. In Psalm 37, David writes about what is the the spirit of the meek person that inherits the earth. That's the psalm that this particular beatitude is built out of. And he says, Here is the heart of the meek. They trust the Lord, they delight in the Lord, they wait on the Lord, and they hope in the Lord. He says, They do so in righteousness, uprightness, and blamelessness by having the word of God in their heart and by not letting their foot stumble. All of that... Harnesses a meek individual. It's hard to harness us. I mean, again, I look at these qualities and I go, meek? On a scale of 1 to 10, I give myself a 3. That's awesome. Um, I'm not as restrained as I should be. I'm too quick with my mouth. I'm too flippant. But Jesus says, I want you to harness that. That's what meekness is really about. And if you do, you're going to inherit the earth, which means uh, God gives you everything and more. Everything and more. Sometimes we're not meek because we want the earth here and now. We just want our little patch of earth. We want our little kingdom and our little life in an ideal way, and it's our little dream when we give America the dream name. And he says, no, but I want you to think eternally about what's yet to come. He says, that's meekness. Another thing he says, so strange, satisfaction, he says, comes through discontent. Satisfaction comes through discontent. This is the practice of healthy appetite. We have appetites. We have insatiable appetites as human beings, right? We want more. Not always a lot more, just a little more every day. Right? Just a little bite, a little bite, a little bite, a little bite, a little bite. And what happens with our appetites is we become what we eat. So if, if we eat, we want materialism, we become very materialistic. And if we eat a lot of sexuality, we become sexually overcharged. And if we eat a lot of bitterness, we become increasingly bitter. Right? We just become what we eat. And Jesus knows this, and so He says, "Man, there's gonna be a lot of things you decide to eat. A lot of things are unhealthy. So if you want to eat anything, if you want to hunger and thirst for anything, make it righteousness." True righteousness. And understand this righteousness is a number of things. One is, it's the righteousness that only God can give. We, again, can't earn righteousness. We can't become self-sustaining, righteous people. We need God's righteousness. This hunger of that God. I want your righteousness. From there, it's like, I don't just want your righteousness, but I want you to define what righteous is. What does it mean to be truly righteous? Which means to be different, uncommon, Set apart unto God, right? To do that which God calls us to do, that's righteous. Literally, it's the idea of justice. But we're not talking Old West justice, papa. That's not, that's not what Jesus means. He really wants to see us strive for that sense of uh, true equality, true fairness, true lifting up of those lesser. He says, that's, that's justice. It's see, one of the things that's really popular for us to talk about today is righteous anger. And I think Jesus looks at us and says, you know, that's all nice, but that's lazy. He wants righteous action. Anybody can get angry. It's not hard. It takes nothing to get angry. And if we see injustice, and we sit on our couch angry, you know what we're doing? Sitting on her couch, angry, and Jesus says, "No, no, no, no! I want you to do justice, not just be angry. Got to do. That's true righteousness. That's the righteousness that I want you to hunger for, and thirst for, and desire. Knowing that one day you'll be judged by that same righteousness. Right? Revelation nineteen eleven. In righteousness, He will judge all things. So we should." Ask him to give it to us. We should ask him to teach us about it. We should ask him to help us accomplish it, realizing we will be judged by it. This is why we hunger and thirst for righteousness. So Jesus says, Man, you do that, you're going to be satisfied. But again, all of these other beatitudes, after the first beatitude, they're all future tense. You, you'll be satisfied one day. You'll be uh, content one day. You will be comforted one day. You have to have vision for this another thing he says is this next beatitude he says sympathy comes through kindness sympathy comes through kindness the practice of empathetic action blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy now some of you in this room have the gift of mercy the rest of us are commanded to mercy which means we're not allowed to be dipwads. all right that's all that means um and it's going to be hard because some of us go, I just don't have the gift of mercy. And I've joked about this. Sometimes when we say that, what they mean is I have the gift of mean, <laughs> you know. So I just lack mercy. I'm blunt. I'm mean. I'm rude. I'm crass. I'm short. I'm quick to the point, which means I usually hurt you. Whatever it is. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 but the stuff of my kingdom. And that's, it's where you're, you're, you're merciful. And see, this is important because again, what is some of the weightiest matters of the law that Jesus said to the, the Pharisees? Things like mercy. See, we look and we think weighty matters of the law are other things. Jesus says, Oh, no, you want to talk about the stuff that I really get hot about? It's when I don't see mercy. Oh, you might be obedient, you might give, you might serve, you might do, you might whatever, but if you don't have mercy, it's like failing on the top three, focusing on the bottom 600. He says, I want mercy. I want justice. Those are the top tier. And without mercy, we're really not displaying what it means to live as people of God, people saved by Jesus. Again, uh, we, more than anybody else, should love mercy because we know how much mercy has been shown to us. Lots of mercy every day. We fail every day. And God shows us mercy. And when it says that we are to be merciful, you ready? We're to be merciful to those who need mercy, and we're supposed to be merciful to the merciless. Notice he doesn't say, hey, be merciful to those only who need it. He says, just be merciful. Just be merciful. God, but there's some merciless people. Yeah, I know. They crucified me. Be merciful. But you don't get it, Jesus. There's some really, really bad people in the world. Yeah, I think I know. Be merciful. Be merciful. Be merciful. Now, again, I don't know how that fully plays. Again, I look at this and I go, I'm not so great at it in my life. This is a very confronting list for me. So, I look and I go, man, I I should be that. My wife has the gift of mercy. God gave her to me to confront me daily. Um, She she doesn't confront me. Her actions confront me. I want to be clear about that because I'm not looking for a fight afterwards. Um, So... (laughs) No, just she's so merciful. My, my, my wife just is merciful, you know? And the other one, too, She's she mourns over sin. We were talking the other day about some stuff, and she's just crying over people's lives. And I'm like, no, they're just stupid, you know? She's like, no, you need Jesus more, you know? I'm like, ah, Jesus, why did you give this woman to me to confront my sin? All right, so. <laughs> but that is her, and she is a gift. And she has mercy, and I go, I need to be merciful too. Why? Because, well, I'm relying on it to receive it someday. That's how I'm going to be judged. Another thing Jesus says is that enlightenment comes through sincerity. This is the practice of inner catharsis, which you look at that title right there, and it suddenly sounds like I'm hugging crystals or something. I mean, I look at that title, and I'm like, really? Enlightenment through sincerity, the practice of inner catharsis. Here's the thing about this. Um, In the Greek culture... Uh, This word sincerity was really helpful. Um, If you would carve uh, uh, some kind of statue out of stone, but it cracked or something like that, they would use wax to cover the cracks. But if it was a perfect statue and no cracks, it was called sincere, which was without wax. That's all it means. Without wax. Right? And so what Jesus is looking for in us is to be people without wax. Right? Sincere pure. In fact, the word catharsis is where we get the word pure in the Greek New Testament. That's what we translate as pure. It's catharsis, basically. And so that's what he wants. He wants for us this inner purity. He wants for us to be without wax. We're not just filling in our cracks with cheap material instead of being the real thing. And so that's why he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We need purity of heart. Again, to do this, to live it, we need purity of heart. There was a quote I read this week by a man named Ivan Turgenev, who said, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is a terrible place. And it's true, if we know our deepest inner selves... We know we're capable of certain things under certain conditions. All human beings are. Some of the worst things you see in humanity, uh, those were all little infants at one time, little kids, had all sorts of potential to go any number of directions, and then you see what they became. We have horrible potential. And so we need pure hearts. And it's great because God gives the pure heart, right? He takes out the heart of stone, he gives the heart of flesh. But then we need to live from that pure heart. We need to do from that pure heart. And as we do so, we do so with vision, knowing that one day we will see God. We will see God. If we live out of the purity of the heart that's been given, we don't squander it or or treat it as a wasted thing, but we live from it. We have confidence that one day when we die, unlike Moses who could just see the, the back of God, we get to see God face to face. Face to face. And we say, that's why we are motivated. That's why we do what we do. But again, it takes vision. Because in this life, you may not see God face to face. But in the life to come, if you live from this, you see him. And Jesus says, man, that's the value to have. Face to face. Jesus gives us another trait. Just keeps pounding him away. And he says, acknowledgement in this case comes through peacemaking. Which is the practice of creating unity. Now there's a lot of makers in culture. There's playmakers and newsmakers and history makers. There's star makers and policy makers and money makers. There's troublemakers, plenty of those. But there's not a lot of peacemakers. There's really not a lot of peacemakers. Um, There are peacekeepers and there's peace enforcers, which I don't know about you, but to see a dude in a powder blue helmet coming at me doesn't seem terribly scary. But, um, like, ooh, peacemakers. Um, not even keepers not even forces they're just cute guys in blue little helmets all right so it doesn't work or we take nuclear weapons and put them on the tips of missiles and we say well there you go that's a that's a peacekeeper in other words the way we keep peace is force that's how we have to do it as human beings i mean we just have to i'm not i'm not arguing i'm saying that's how we have to do it the only way the only thing the human race can manage is peace through the sword all the way back to rome peace through the sword Peace through the potential for violence. Peace by reminding you that I can get you. Peace. I can get you through a lawyer or through a police officer. I can get you through a weapon or I can get you whatever. But that's how we do it. But, but Jesus says something here that's completely different. He says, you know what? I don't want you to simply be uh, peace keepers. He says, I want you to be peace creators. Peacemakers. That's a whole different prospect because that's Unnatural. And what this doesn't mean is having a whatever attitude. Well, the way I'm gonna keep the paces by going, eh, whatever, I don't care. I'm just gonna to agree to disagree, but I won't say anything. Blah. Right, I'll just take the dive. I'm gonna resent it inside, but I'll just kind of fake it, do whatever I need to do. That's that's not that's not being a peacemaker. A peacemaker means you get involved. A peacemaker means you make an investment. A peacemaker means you might hurt a little bit to make peace. A peacemaker says, you know what, I'm going to make sure my opinions are just that and don't matter in comparison to what God really says, what God really wants, and I'm going to fight for that. That's peace creating. And so we're only going to create peace if we realize, first of all, I have peace in God. From that I have peace from God, and therefore I need to love the peace of God. Uh, The bottom line is sometimes we just don't love peace, we love conflict. We love getting our own way, we love having our own opinion, we love stirring up trouble, we love being the devil's advocate, again, dumbest thing ever. More than we love peace and fight to create it. But that's exactly what God wants for his people. Blessed Happy, useful, complete are those who make peace selflessly, graciously, courageously, sensitively, right? That's what we are to fight for. And when we do that, man, we're called sons of God. Literally, it's like that's a chip off the old block. That's what that means. I mean, you look at the length in which God went to make peace between us and himself through his son. That's a big thing. Then Jesus gets to the last one. And in this beatitude, he says, reward comes through opposition. He speaks of the practice of joyful suffering. Verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I look at this, and this has always like been really odd to me, like a strange way to wrap up where I'm like, really? So, you have a person that's poor in spirit, mourns, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peacemaking. How on earth can they be persecuted? Uh, bottom line, the um, world just doesn't like these things. They say they like these things, but when you are really confronted by a person that lives this out, it confronts what's in you, and you don't like that. I don't like that. We don't like it. When somebody lives just better than us and it sort of exposes our junk, we want to rebel against that a little bit. Right? Because, again, we have to hold ourselves up to some sort of light. And if they're a type of light, we will struggle with that. And so Jesus says, man, when you really live in these ways, you might get persecuted, even for peacemaking. You go, who persecutes a peacemaker? Well, ask Gandhi. Gandhi. Ask Martin Luther King, you know, ask any college kid that's been pepper sprayed for a peace rally, you know, and you you just get persecuted for being a peacemaker when you try. Right? We don't always love that. Jesus says these are the traits of the kingdom. And this is what happens. Now understand, not all persecution is persecution. I mean, sometimes Christians are persecuted but it's not really persecution they think they're being persecuted for being a christian the reality is they're being persecuted for not so much acting like a christian that happens sometimes too right so uh, maybe they're rude or insensitive or thoughtless or obnoxious or hypocritical or opinionated or self-righteous or religious or whatever and they go i'm being persecuted i'm like no you're being punished all right um because you're not being nice you're not being christ-like that's not persecuted just because you have the name jesus no persecution jesus says it's for righteousness sake for righteousness, right? So you're harassed or teased or mocked or looked down upon or thought to be a hick or naive or silly or whatever because you say, I believe Jesus is God. I believe the Bible is true. I believe the gospel is the only way to heaven. I believe the church is Jesus's body here on earth. That stuff is what gets persecution. The other stuff, if we're just showing opinions on things, that's not necessarily persecution, it's just differences of opinion. But Jesus is when you stand up for what really matters. Man, I will bless you for suffering in those ways. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Again, he goes back to present tense. That's just life in the kingdom. And so what does all of this mean? And again, I know this has been somewhat heavy. It's by design. Next week will be lighter by design. But this week is heavy because, again, it brings us in that place that looks at these eight virtues, these eight values, these eight character traits, and says, Man, I need to live deliberately. There is no way we can do this without living deliberately. Without saying, I have a concerted desire and effort to live in the context of this grace. The grace Jesus has given us to live out these values is not a cheap grace It's not an empty grace it's not a powerless grace it's not a non-transforming grace no it is a transformational powerful life-giving life-shaping grace where we can look at our world and say you know what Um, if i have to choose between it or the world to come i choose the world to come because i know it's that much more rewarding that much deeper that much more, more profound And for that, that's where I lay my claim. Let's pray together. Jesus, these first ten verses, these first words you spoke of your manifesto, are just hard words. If taken to deepest heart, they are hard words. It's hard to find comfort in those. It's hard to find hope, even though every one of those, you give us comfort and hope. You say, hey man, you're going to be comforted, you're going to be satisfied, you're going to be filled, you're going to inherit the earth, you're going to be a son of God, you're going to see God. Uh, Again, for us as being kind of land lovers of this world, so to speak, sometimes those promises are hard for us to lay our hand to for the shallow things of this world. I know that that is the case with me, and I pray that that will not be the case. That I will believe, that we will believe, that you bring blessing when we seek these things. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you in your name. Amen.